As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello, welcome to The Phil Hay Show. It's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. With me from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And from The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello. Treat yourself to a Christmas gift right now then, or a loved one, someone who wants something good to read. 33% off the full price of a sub for The Athletic right now. Uh, great analysis, in-depth features, the best team of football writers anywhere on the planet and plenty of other sport on there as well. Ad-free versions of all these podcasts, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to take advantage of that. Phil, uh, sell it to me now. What can I read this week? A few post-mortems this week, so I, I would suggest to people that the depth of content that's already on there is, is well worth well worth paying for. Um, we did, or I wrote at length about the abuse that um, Matthias Cleek was getting on Twitter over the weekend after the Chelsea game. There is a roundup of Tuesday night's events at Manchester City, which people may or may not enjoy. Uh, we've also did we got, play there? Apparently so. Yeah, it's mm. one of those, isn't it, where you think that's been a nice free week. This just forget about that. <laughs> Uh, and we've just run a uh, survey this week as well, just to get people's views on where they think the season is at, where the sort of levels of confidence are um, in terms of Bielsa and the squad and everything else that will probably be online as we speak now. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And let's get into it then. We can't avoid it, can we? Well, this is the the beauty of how we record this. We record this on a Thursday. Um, Bielsa's press conference is in about an hour from now and we will break off and we'll come back in part three and analyse the injuries that are uh, brought to bear and probably Dan James is going to be included in that by the sounds of it but you get to hear our disappointment unfold in real time um, because you already know what's happened in that press conference so we'll revisit that at the end first let's get into what's happened this week 10 goals conceded in a week two defeats give us something positive Phil oh blame me um Yes, uh, I guess the, the the slight positive is that COVID might shut down the season and we might all get a nice big breather um, in which various injured players can return. You are absolutely right. I mean, the injuries are just getting beyond out of hand now. Actually, the the positive of the week was a very good performance at Chelsea. I think the the impact of that late penalty, though, the timing of it, the way it was conceded, the fact that I almost felt like Leeds had deserved to win that game, let alone draw it. They they played extremely well the system and the and the tactics that Bielsa had employed had been really clever in as far as I could tell trying to stop Alonso on the on the left hand side for Chelsea allowing Werner to isolate Stuart Dallas and, and use his pace against him Werner can kind of drift through games and, and never looks that impressive for 50 million pounds I don't think but he is incredibly quick 
And that seemed to work really well. That was where Chelsea's first goal came from. But generally, the setup was good. The, the pressing was good. Chelsea didn't have enough of a grip on, on the midfield. And from the point where Gilhart scored, I actually thought it was probably more likely that Leeds were going to win the game. But at the least, you were thinking they'll come away with a, a point from this, especially as it went into injury time. The impact of that goal, I felt, and somebody said this to me on the, on the train home from Chelsea, and I felt the same, was that suddenly you felt that the chances of getting much or doing much at City had been diminished. To play that well on Saturday and to come away with nothing, I think made Tuesday's game even harder. Although I did not anticipate <laughs> the, the Etihad going quite the way it did until about two minutes in when Llorente gave that sort of pass with the outside of his foot straight to Bernardo Silva. I think it was Silva missed that open goal and he thought this is, this is genuinely going to be a really, really long evening. And there were points on Tuesday where, to be perfectly honest, it felt as if you were watching a team play in a different sport. We've said on this show, haven't we, a number of times that you can generally sense in the opening 10 minutes of a game what a Leeds United performance is going to be like. And that's why within that first 10 minutes, I just sort of mentally switched off. I was in the room watching it here with you, Michael. But as soon as that, well, there was the missed chance and then the first one went in. I was like, nah, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Although I was saying the, there was a similar feeling to the home game against them last season when they came out of the blocks and looked like they were going to absolutely destroy us. And Liverpool on the opening day of, of last season when the, the opening few minutes you thought were in a lot of trouble here. like they're, they're completely all over us and then there was a, a point in the game where we managed to get a foothold and had to actually some quite good spells uh, it's fair to say that did not happen the other day I think the difference last season was that in that first kind of 20 minute spell at Ellen Road City had all of the ball and it was kind of their play entirely that was making it difficult for Leeds you could tell straight away on Tuesday that as well as City were playing and, and they were really really exceptional Leeds were all over the place uh, and there was no structure to the system. They were making bad mistakes. They were pretty much inviting the sort of beating that, that they got in the end. And I think that was the, the story of it, was that the City were just able to cruise through the game, playing well in, in every position. Leeds were as bad as I think I've ever seen them under Bielsa and he said that as well at full time. You know, we've never had a performance like this. I, I mean, he wasn't even trying to dig out anything positive from it at all. He just said... Everything that they did in their half worked. Everything we did in their half didn't. It was. Did we even get into their half? Well, there were those chances at 4 0 down. You know, <laughs> Dallas hitting the post, Harrison deflecting wide. There was obviously the um, Zinchenko handball at, at 2 0 as well. Game but, turned on that, didn't it? Game turned on that. Yeah. I was saying, I, I wrote afterwards, you know, the, the Light Brigade didn't get credited for the decorative saddles did they, um, they, like, yeah, they I enjoyed that line they just they yeah. just got gunned down um, and that's <laughs> and that's how that's how it was going right right the way through I mean City are City are incredibly good and there's no denying the, the value of their squad but tactically they, they're, they're great at making the pitch massive the way they position themselves not not specifically with the movement but they position themselves in places where it becomes very difficult for opposition fullbacks to either tuck in or to double up on players because you, you have to mark the men who are in, in wide areas or who are spread all over the pitch. But the movement as well, a couple of the goals, it was really quite simple, but but you know, clever and, and clearly well drilled, which was Foden dropping deep from the from the nine position, dragging a centre back out, somebody running in behind, you know, you could kind of see it being telegraphed and you could see it coming. But Leeds seemed to be a yard behind in terms of pace, a yard behind in terms of thought as well, I thought, all the way through. And I don't know, I mean, in the end, would you say that 7-0 was a little bit flattering? It felt like a relief when it ended. It was the only thing. Well, it, it was that awful moment, was it? About 20 minutes to go. We're like, oh, Christ, there's 20 minutes to go. It felt like they... Did we anger them 
by beating them last year. And do you think they, there was a determination to really grind us into the dirt? I didn't think that to begin with. You, you weren't looking at it thinking, right, you know, they're, they're still stewing on April and they're, they're going to lay it on thick here. But as they were going for goal number eight in injury time, which <laughs> would have been, you know, club record defeat for Leeds, oh, you did think that they're not letting this go at all, are they? I'm you know, really you had, sorry, we won't, we, won't, we won't do it again. You had De Bruyne and Foden, you know, just queuing up on the edge of the box, looking for, for finishes from, from 20 yards. From a neutral point of view, watching some of their play is it's just fabulous football. I mean, De Bruyne is an absolute joke. It's like playing football in his sleep. You know, he just cruises through it, does all the right things. Leeds were very guilty of, of letting Rodri career through, you know, the middle of the pitch, of leaving De Bruyne in gaps, particularly for that finish. But that finish, I said to Michael before we came on air, you could tell De Bruyne knew he was going to score that before he hit it. And he was basically just there saying, I may as well stick this in the roof of the net. So, <laughs> so he did. And that is why yeah. if you valued City's squad from top to bottom, people talk about a billion pounds. I mean, it'd be miles beyond that. Well, well, we sat rather than actually listen to, on our propaganda show, we normally listen to like the opposition fans for their reaction to the game. We didn't. We just did a, a game of play your cards right on Man City's squad and the transfer fees. But the total of that starting eleven was, what, was it, what did we say? It was, I've got the piece, baby. Hey, bear with a second. It was £526.8 million starting eleven. They had uh, £176 million on the bench and £177 million worth of players missing. Yeah, I can't even really process those figures. It's just, it's, I was reading this morning about Springsteen selling his back catalogue to Sony for £500 million and saying to Michael, or dollars, saying to Michael, imagine that dropping into your, into your bank account just before Christmas. And it's kind of like that when you hear those numbers read out. It's just baffling amounts. But you, you see the difference that it makes. And it, it's a little bit depressing to think of the, the gap between, I mean, City are now a mile, almost 30 points clear of Leeds. And actually, that probably is a pretty fair gap given the way that the teams are playing. But it's not, you know, it's not particularly good for the division at all. But that's not, you know, it's not, not City's problem. But it was, you know, it was tactically, it was a mess from Leeds' perspective. It was absolutely perfect, I think, from City's. What do you think changed though? Because we had the same eleven that played against Chelsea and Man City and we nullified Chelsea really, really well. And yet, you know, I know football doesn't work like this, but we've seen Man City and Chelsea go toe-to-toe quite a bit over recent seasons. And yet, you know, it was just poles apart when it came to how we dealt with them. What, what was the difference between the two games? Don't you think that the teams they played were poles apart as well though? It's not that the poles apart in the division but it was very hard to look at Chelsea and to see anything like the class in their team that you saw in Cities um, on Tuesday night and I think Chelsea are out of form a little bit and, and, and can definitely play better than that but it wasn't easy to I mean, if you, you look at Leeds 11 I don't think anybody on Tuesday Rafinha included would have got into that City team it was, it was too good I'm not totally convinced that anybody from the Chelsea team would have got into that City team on Tuesday night either because, of again, the, the way they were playing, they just looked on a, another level. And I'm not sure whether over the course of the season they'll be on another level to Chelsea. It might be that Chelsea can stay in the hunt and I think Liverpool are, are still a big threat to, to City. But that was part of it. And, and as I say, I, I wonder mentally whether it is difficult when you come away from somewhere like Stamford Bridge where, let's be honest, that might be as pessimistic anybody has ever been about a Bielsa game, the Chelsea one. I think everybody beforehand felt, owing to injuries and form, that, that Leeds were going to get done at Stamford Bridge. And then they played really well and, and they deserved the result. But they, they got done right at the end with, with that penalty. And suddenly you don't really have any impetus. You know, you, you'd have taken a point from that game and said that is a really good and, and valuable point. 
but you don't get it and suddenly it's the next game is is Manchester City away and Guardiola is going to play a very strong team and they're in in full flow. I think that was that was part of it. You have to say as well that I wasn't expecting Bielsa to change anything significantly at half time. I know he brought on Gilhart, but you knew that the system and the tactics would would stay the same given the way it had worked in the first half and how badly the man marking had, had worked. It was kind of asking for it. I mean, it, it was it was set up in the second half for Leeds to get tongued. We're essentially incapable of playing any other way, though, aren't we? In t- in terms of the man for man thing, it's something we're so wedded to. But, but are, are we though? Because look at the back end of last season when we nullified. I mean, none of the so called big six won at Ellen Road last season. Mm. And you look at the back end of last season when we shot out Liverpool, we shot out Man United. We did a good job on all the teams, and it seemed to be when we were playing a bit deeper. Mm. We still, I mean, we still did the man-for-man thing, I suppose, didn't we? But I guess you do that deep. I mean, Man City were clever in the way that like Foden was dropping really deep mm. and, and taking, I think Urente was like following him into into their half at points and stuff. And it was, I guess that is when you need to take a step back from it and go, look, this isn't, this is to no one's benefit anymore. Don't follow him. Don't follow him as far as that. Follow him as far as like, well, I guess, know, is that not the where middle the, third or whatever. Well, this is where the but, questions about Bielsa's dogma come into it, aren't they? Because, you can, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure it out when you look at those two lineups. You know, our lineup was 82 million quid against Man City with the bench bringing it up to about 90 or under 100 anyway, under a Grealish. For you to look at those two lists of players and go, well, if we play man for man, to a man, pretty much every single one of their players is better than ours. So if we try and go toe to toe for them, man for man, knowing that they will pull us out of position, we're going to get absolutely roasted. And easy to say it with hindsight, but. You said to me, Phil, in a message, like one of these games has been coming for a while and it, it came to pass. And that's what's at the root of the fears of Leeds fans is that Bielsa's dogma, he doesn't, he doesn't sometimes doesn't, I mean, I don't ever, ever want to turn on him. Of course not. I want to lay that one very clearly on the table now. But you can see the faults in being so wedded to a system, can't you, in a, in a situation like that? Well, I'll just jump in there and say that in the survey that we've done, the support of Bielsa is absolutely rock solid. I mean, it is. And and so it should be, really. You know, the, the league position is not great, but it's not desperate either. You know, they, they're just having a hard season and, the, and there are factors involved in that. We might have spoken about this earlier in the season, but from the start of the year, start of the season, the Manchester United away, and you asked for a positive at the start of this, and one positive is that Leeds don't have to go back to Manchester this season because that's 12 12 goals across two games um, that they've they've played over there and deservedly really it felt and then Liverpool a few weeks later it felt as if this season when Leeds played your top three or four or five clubs they might be at risk of conceding like this in every single game because of the way they play and because matching up man for man you know on paper and, and then on the pitch is a kind of risky game to play and we've got Anfield coming in you know a little over a, a week's time and I guess you, you have to have to ask yourself is it right to go there and do the same thing which they will you know they, they'll go there and they'll play in the same way and, and Bielsa's thought process with this is always that if you keep repeating something over and over again you will get it right you know you even if it dips and even if it even if you find yourself out of form it will come back because you're keeping going with the same strategy and, and the same process but if you go to Liverpool and lose in the same way playing the same way doing the same things making the same mistakes it's not a great look and to take you back to a conversation we had in December last season after Old Trafford and where they lost 6-2, I was saying to you that I can imagine in any point in history losing 6-2 there, Leeds, and the reaction being as kind of charitable and, and supportive as it was. People were quite happy to sort of say, look, live by the sword, die by the sword. That is going to happen because of the, the, way, the way we play. And, and that, that's right. 
But we said at the time, if you move 12 months down the line and that is still happening, you know, you're still getting smashed in these games where you're not necessarily expecting to take anything from them. But Bielsa himself, as you could see in his body language on Tuesday, would expect to compete in some way. Does that raise a question about what's going on? And, and, and are people going to be quite as tolerant as this, you know, as we, we go forward of these results reoccurring? I have to say, though, on Tuesday, the away ends were incredible. I mean, we're going to talk in part two about bad defeats. I've been to bad defeats where the away end have turned on the players and sometimes deservedly so. On Tuesday, most people seem to stay until the final whistle. Leeds fans anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, yeah, fair point. Um, and they don't know uh, what they've got, do they? I don't think they do. No. I really don't think they do. Maybe, maybe to give them their due, they've never looked for fantasy football and maybe that isn't what it's about for them. And do you know what? If it, that's, Fair enough if, if it isn't. But I said to my colleague, Sam Lee, who covers City for us, you get to watch this every week, you absolute twat. You know, you, <laughs> you, you get to sit and watch De Bruyne and Foden and, you know, this level of football all the time. Maybe you do become a bit complacent about it. Maybe it does just become what you're accustomed to every week. But it's exceptional, exceptional football. But just to go back to the away end, loads of applause for the players at full time. And actually, again, and this has been, I think, a running theme of the season, just this total refusal to abandon the squad and to abandon Bielsa and to to turn and and to let it slide because I think I think the fans realise that they're needed this season and one of the reasons I'm convinced that it went well at Stamford Bridge I know it ended in defeat but the performance went well was because you could tell from the outset that the away end had not gone there for a pace and once they got into the ground you could tell that they wanted something from the game and I do think that transmits to players on the pitch I think if you get on the pitch. And you sense from the away end that they're all feeding the worst, then it's probably going to happen. Maybe there was a bit of that on Tuesday. I don't know. It didn't feel like that to me. But certainly at Stamford Bridge, everybody was right into it again. And, and it has helped. It has helped in certain games. I think the other thing to reflect on Bielsa's entirety of, of his Premier League life, I guess, is that against those big teams, you know, we have now got four points from nine against Man City in those. And that's, that's great. And I, I know we've got, I think we've got a point from the three games against Liverpool, Chelsea and Man United as well, which actually, for a team in the bottom half, it's probably about par for the course because no one gets points off those teams in general. I know Man United have had like certain patches of form where people have taken points off them, but no one gets points off, yeah. off like, Man City, Liverpool I guess and Chelsea. Because I saw someone say that like the, the Man City away game last season, it's it's a 1-in-20 result, is that? Mm. On any other day, they had 29 shots, didn't they? Admittedly, a lot of them from outside of the box because of the way we set up and dropped really, really deep. But to get that result with 10 men, it's one in a 20, one in a 50 type result, which is why it felt so good and why it was like the high point of the season. It was tactically brilliant that year. Yeah. It was. But, it was really clever. But I guess that's the reason why Bielsa does Bielsa things against these teams because every now and then it works. You expect to lose. So if you lose, it doesn't come as a great shock. But then again, there are degrees of losing, aren't there? And then when you lose 7 0, it, it hurts a great deal and questions, questions have to be asked. I think, particularly across the Liverpool, City, and Man United games so far, they've looked considerably less competitive than they did last season you know they were well worth a point away at Anfield last season which they didn't get in the end but again really late penalty they were well worth a point um, at home to Liverpool at home to Manchester City at home to Manchester United as well it would be hard to say that from any of those three games as as you know Chelsea was different um, on Saturday but certainly City on, on Tuesday I mean that game that game felt over from like I say the moment Llorente gave the ball away because you just thought it's this is mismatched tonight it's just not that Leeds are not going to be there in, in the way that they need to um, to to compete properly but I suppose if you're being philosophical about it you would say that 
and th- and this is true, even though it's a, a real cliche, that it isn't games at the Etihad that keep you up. It really isn't. There are other games that Leeds are going to have to perform better in, and, and the same probably goes for Anfield away on Boxing Day. You know, that's a horribly hard fixture. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you if you're looking for upsides, City are the best team in the country at the moment. I think there is still that gap to the bottom three, albeit helped by COVID postponements and, and Burnley building up games in hand, and they're still. They're still okay. They're still okay. I mean, the point is Burnley can have games in hand. They've only won one game all season. So Precisely, you know. yeah. The thing about the Watford game, actually, and, and it being postponed, was that that would have closed the gap to some extent. Somebody had to take points from that. And, and with those two being directly below Leeds, that would have would have changed the table. And I think if, if you were to come out of these four games with no points, God forbid, but it might happen, and the gap was still essentially there, I think you'd be pretty happy with that. That's all that matters, isn't it? It's the gap to the bottom lot. Yeah. And even, and if they really have, even if they have games in hand, I guess it's kind of nice that they've not got points on the board and they're going to at some point have some congestion as well, which I'm sure Dyche will moan like mad about. But Like what? <laughs> 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 I heard that moment of hesitation that you thought, this is the athletic podcast, I need to be careful. <laughs> yes, let's not do, let's not do Dyche on this one. Um, but yeah, I think it, to have a nice pile-up of fixtures for Burnley would be a, a good thing for us. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Well, prepare yourself then. We're going to talk about Tonkins now in, in part two. But let's try and put a nice, positive, happy, fun spin on it because these ones are all in the past. So is the Man City game as well, actually. We don't have to go through that again for now. <laughs> Good point. I like your appreciation of time and space. Yeah. <laughs> um, shall I kick you off with a piece of history from the 6-0 at Hillsborough? Well, that's in interesting. You, you've, brought, you've brought a piece of, it looks like Leeds United headed notepaper, it Phil. Is. I'm intrigued. It is. Yeah. Um, this is from the week after the 6-0 defeat to Sheffield Wednesday, which was also knocking on the door of, of a record defeat. It's an email to Brian McDermott from Hisham Al Reyes, who spelt his name wrong, but you'll remember was a GFH bod who joined the board at Leeds United. The, the backdrop to this was that they discussed quite seriously sacking McDermott at halftime at Hillsborough, but didn't. But irrespective of the fact that they didn't, they'd basically completely lost faith in him or it was, you know, it was dwindling to the point of being non-existent. They were also about to sell the club, so they were in this difficult situation of trying to decide should we keep him because it won't be a problem should we sack him because the results are are going sour or whatever else so I'll read this verbatim because some of the spelling is not great just for fun it does start dear Brian rather than dear brain which would have been um, which would have been great but (laughs) this is a genuine email that went to McDermott in the week after Sheffield Wednesday and the week before Leicester City with reference to the communication taking place acting CEO Regarding the subject matter, the subject matter is performance and management of LUFC team. LUFC board would like to express the dissatisfaction on the way the team has been managed and the surprising results in the last seven games, in particular Saturday's game, that being Hillsborough. 
The team has only managed to achieve two points from a possible 15 in the Championship recently. It has been knocked out of what was anticipated to be a lucrative cup run um, in the FA Cup. <laughs> I kind of doubt that. Clearly don't know the club history. <laughs> I was humiliated live on television this weekend against the local rival. Of most concern has been the performance and standard of play in these last two games, which cannot be excused. The previous game to Hillsborough, of course, being Rochdale in the FA Cup. Therefore, and as per our meetings, our meetings following Saturday's game, the board would like to reconfirm the following. Number one, the board demand to see an immediate improvement commencing with the game versus Leicester City next weekend. Two, you're required to submit by no later than Tuesday a full report explaining the poor performance of the team in the, in the least seven games last and detailed analysis about last game explaining technical shortfalls and how would they be prevented in the next coming games. Three, for each game now onward, you will be required to submit a report on strategy to be undertaken, list of players and squad formation in a minimum of 24 hours prior to the game for group CEO and chairman's approval. Four, following each game, you're required to submit a report about the game, including technical assessment, performance of players and forward planning for the benefit of discussion with the board. Finally, while we continue to support you further if positive results and performance of the team is turned around, we expect you to take the points raised in this memo seriously and report to the board with the required information and action plan. So that is one way of dealing with a heavy defeat. Interesting. It's uh, worth saying GFH at the time had no they had no football people on board either, did they? It's not like it wouldn't be like I don't if, think they had any business people on board, Michael. It wouldn't be like if Victor Alter was asking for reports or something, someone who actually understands football at all. No, well Al Reyes was um famously the guy who said they shouldn't sign Harvey Barnes because he had worse stats on football manager. Ashley, Bar- or Ash- uh, Ashley Barnes. Harvey Barnes. Ashley Barnes, God, that would have been I mean quite a signing, wouldn't it, seven years ago? Um Ashley Barnes because he had poorer stats on because he was football still a, manager because Harvey Barnes was still yeah Harvey Barnes was still at primary school, school yeah <laughs> 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 stats on um, football manager or a another than Luke Varney so therefore it didn't happen right great bunch of lads weren't they James I mean, you might as well just sack a manager rather than doing I that I mean with, you with those reports as well you would be tempted I mean I, I presume that Brian McDermott his reaction to that would be what you'd expect which was incredulity basically, and you would you would put the most facetious report in possible, wouldn't you? You'd, something along the lines of, they scored more goals than us. That I'm, was the technical shot. I reminded yeah. of Gordon Strachan when someone asked him which areas it had gone wrong in, and he said the big green one. <laughs> <laughs> Strachan would have been brilliant for this, yeah. yeah he'd, he'd have been perfect. Do, do um, you know how, how McDermott did react to that? I'm pretty sure he told the line because he knew that there was a takeover coming and he still wanted the job and he, he wanted to, to press on with it. Honest answer is I'm not totally sure, but I'm pretty... I'm, fairly certain that I was told at the time that yeah no he did he did kind of comply with that but of course it was a a matter of a a week or so or two weeks later that he was sacked and then reinstated so all this stuff just went out the window and GFH kind of disappeared and um, stopped putting money in or loans and and stopped paying stopped you know being willing to pay the wage bill it was a it was a right old mess but as I say if you ever get to the stage where you're sending a manager an email like that you really should just (laughs) sack him what are GFH up to these days do we know I've no idea. Um, I did follow GFH Capital for a long time on Twitter, but I, the account might have disappeared. No, they're still, still on there. I still they? follow them. Yeah, I, I just to get occasional things pop into my feed that say they've acquired something. Normally some property or business in the Middle East and you kind of go, mm, okay, it's, it's very weird that they, every, that every they ever owned Leeds. Yeah, it feels like the bit of that owned Leeds, it feels very detached from the bit you see on Twitter, unless I just don't look at that enough to know it's also a shambles. I, every now and again, I look at um, Celine Patel's Twitter. Well, as it happens, I am on it right now, Phil. I just as you were talking there, I opened it up. Do you want to know the top three? The last three tweets. Yeah, go we've on. got one where he's doing something good. He's retweeting support of a petition for support for pancreatic cancer. Fair enough. Prior to that, 
The club is retweeting the club account saying the club would like to make it clear that Brian McDermott remains our first team manager, which oh, is happy days, very yeah. topical. And prior to that is a tweet where he ats David Haig saying, are you missing the weather in Dubai? Mm. <laughs> right. Yes. I, I think I'm blocked by David Haig on Twitter these days, which is a shame. I mm. was an interesting man. <laughs> very much so. Quite the backstory. How do Leeds recover from this Man City game, do you think then? And how does a team go about recovering from an absolute pasting like that? It's probably easier to rationalise if it's a team like City who've done it to you. I think the thing about the Hillsborough defeat was that in no way were that Wednesday team a stellar Wednesday team. Um, I don't think, unless I'm wrong, that they were, were they in the mix for promotion that season? I, I can't remember. I don't feel like they were. Leeds lost to Leicester the following weekend and Leicester won the title at Cantor. So that was, you know, there's no real hardship in that. But it is quite interesting the way that, that players and managers do react to bad results because there's no kind of fixed formula for it. I mean, I asked Bielsa after on Tuesday, what will you do over the next few days? You know, how how will you address this? And you knew he was going to say, we'd do the, the usual things. And that's what he said, you know, we'll, we'll try and understand what went wrong. But you always feel like there are particular nights or particular days, results that need kind of special treatment. So, for example, a month or so ago, I wrote about the Rehubka night at Ellen Road. And there was a lot more to Leeds at that point, a lot more to their kind of decline and their decaying form than just the goalkeeper. But the reaction to that was immediately to go and sign Alex McCarthy from Reading. You know, it's a case of we cannot give Rehubka another game here. It's just not fair on him. It's not going to work. You know, he's, he's not going to recover from that quickly enough. So straight away afterwards, within about a day, from what I was told, Sean Harvey was at a was attending a funeral the next day and wrapped up that deal in the car park outside the church because that's how rapidly they had to do it. And then you have things like Histon, Gary McAllister as manager, where he was summoned to Monaco after that to see Ken Bates. And and McAllister came back and he said, look, I didn't fear for my job when I went out there. I didn't think that was what it was about. But Bates quite obviously wanted to speak to him, you know, and, and the reaction to that, and that wasn't terrible in terms of, you know, a massive scoreline, but it was terrible in terms of Leeds losing to a non-league side and, and the whole, the, the whole day was just abysmal, the weather and, and everything else. But Bates clearly wanted to speak to him and clearly wanted to say, you know, where are we going? And, and I still look at Piston and think it was the beginning of the end for McAllister, you know, or, or very close to the beginning of the end because it was downhill from there and they never, ever recovered um, from that point onwards. So these do tend to have consequences, but you do get games. And one that jumps out to me is the, the 7-3 against Forrest. You do have games where, because of circumstances, actually everybody's able to to move on. One, it was very, very early in his reign at that point. So even though it was just the most baffling night, the prevailing mood was, well, it's going to be next season for Warnock, isn't it? He's going to get to the summer, he's going to bin a lot of these players, he's going to sign a lot of other players, and we'll see how it works. Well, I think it was after that one when Warnock gave it the, um, you'll never see a Neil Warnock team play like that again. And then and then I think the next season we went and Watford spanked the 6-1 at home, didn't they? And it was like, ah, here we are again. Yeah. Never mind, Neil. They, they, I think they did end up, did they not end up with nine players against um, Watford? So it was mm. it was kind of slightly different, but a little bit like City on Tuesday, McCleary looked like he was going to score about 10 on his own um, on that, that Forest night. But it was the context of it was totally different because people knew that the season had gone. Warnock had pretty much said from the moment he walked through the door, there's no way this squad are getting to the playoffs. They were kind of like, eight points, seven points back. And the game, you know, on the day he got appointed, you had that Becchio injury time winner against Doncaster that sort of kept them in the running, kind of. But every time you asked Warnock about it, he would say, no, we're nowhere near good enough. We're miles off. That was the phrase he always used to use. So you could take a Tonkin against Forrest and say, okay, well, we just need to 
swallow this and, and take our medicine until we, we get to the summer. Um, and I think people will feel that about City on Tuesday. What's to be done? And, you know, in, in fairness to Bielsa, and I do sympathise on this front, the injuries just get worse. You know, it's not even like you, you get back to the training ground and you, you say, right, everybody get together. Let's work on this. Let's think about what we're going to do. You've got players suspended. You've got players injured. You've got nothing like a, a full squad. It's it's really, really difficult. And I, I do think, again, I think the crowd will be massively up for Arsenal on Saturday. But I do think there will be a lot of sympathy for what's going on. Just an update on um, Forrest. I have checked. They tried to make a little bit of hay with us on Tuesday when we conceded seven by saying, hey, they're used to it. And then somebody put a screenshot up of the scoreboard, you know, and it was 7-3. They're currently uh, eighth in the Championship, leader in the Premier League. Yes, but if they win the next five games, it could get interesting, couldn't it? <laughs> Are you Michael Dawson there? <laughs> I don't think it was Dawson, actually. I think it was somebody else. But still, yes. Um, I think previously, the, the kind of critical, horrible defeat I can think of is always Hereford away for Grayson, which was a really sort of significant turning point for him and that squad, that was a that was a horrible evening. Right from the start, actually, we got to Hereford and the people down there said, um, in the in the press box, the electricity is only for local journalists. Um, That's a bit right and, 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 and actually, and actually, so is the the press box. You, you can't sit in the press box or have a program. You know, it was it was a bit kind of like that. But anyway, I sat in the press box anyway because there was nowhere else to to sit, and I don't think I had any electricity. This is for but local be- people. But because of the way it was designed that evening. I kept having to open the door to hear what the abuse was that was coming from the away end because you could hear things being <laughs> shouted and said and sung, but you couldn't quite work it out through through the glass. And obviously that ended with, I think it was Carl Dickinson, the last game of his loan from Stoke, and he went to the away end to applaud them. And, you know, nothing that had really gone on was particularly Dickinson's fault, but he took a barrage of hammer and, you know, off he went. And Grayson kept the players in for about 45 minutes after that and I think just said to them, if you're going to come to Hereford and play like this, there is just no chance of us getting out of this division. So if you don't think you can do better than this, then there are going to have to be changes. If you do think you can do better than this, get a grip and let's go. And there was that really strong run of form from, from there on um, that got them into the playoffs and then obviously it built up the following season. So different ways of, of handling things. The, the one thing people have always said about Bielsa is that when they have really bad defeats or bad weekends, he tends to go a little bit softly, softly on the players. He tries not to be brutal with them because I don't think he, he thinks there's any mileage to be had from that and he's probably right and I think as well if if you were full strength at City and playing like that then you would maybe look at a few players and say sort this out but I think when you know if you're adding Dan James to that list of, of absentees and you've got basically nine senior players who, who you can pick from there's not a right lot of point in shouting the odds and pointing fingers Funny isn't it how like these significant nights that stick in the memory often end up as kind of the symbol of a, of a following downfall. So let's hope that the, the Man City thing that happened on Tuesday isn't that. But there's often stuff attached to it, like I go back to 2002 in the FA Cup when we played at Cardiff, and that is often seen as the beginning of the end for the O'Leary era at Ellen Road. I was looking like down the results of that season up to that point, and you know we kicked off the season against Southampton at home and won 2-0, unbeaten until third week in November when we lost at Sunderland. Uh, we had that mad 4-3 defeat at home to Newcastle just before Christmas. But really, we'd only lost twice in the league up to the new year. And then we beat West Ham on New Year's Day at home, 3-0 at Ellen Road. And then we went to Cardiff and we didn't win in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven games afterwards. Isn't it funny how this just 
happen sometimes. It can happen. Somebody mentioned that game to me over the weekend because people will have seen that Leeds have been charged by the FA for confronting the referee after the, the the late penalty at Chelsea, although that seemed to have been going on with the initial penalty as well. And these things, the one that was awarded against Chelsea, and these things are so opaque that you're never quite sure why it is that the rules are being applied in one way and, and not the other. But anyway, I digress. Somebody just very, very randomly raised the... Do you remember the... the and, and this was blamed for quite a lot of what went on. Sam Haman, the, the old um, Cardiff owner, used to do that thing where he walked behind the goal in front of the um, the away end at Ninian Park, which, uh, yeah. And pa- pam, pam my head there, sorry, yeah, you can't yeah, see that. No, no um, the, the, I don't know what they call it, Cardiff salute or whatever. So the Ayatollah? Yeah, Ayatollah, the Ayatollah, yeah. sorry. I, I yeah, kept thinking of the Poznan because we just played Man yeah, City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the Ayatollah, yeah. And it just kind of whipped up the crowd. And I only went to Ninian Park once, but I have to say... If there was one stadium that did not need whipped up, it was definitely there. They used to have this press box, which was basically a row of seats in the main stand. So it wasn't really segregated. You just sat with supporters in front of you and behind you. And it's one of those grounds where I always had to just pretend to be from like the Telegraph or somewhere, you know, if anybody ever asked, where are you from? Ah, what the Guardian? Because the last thing you wanted to say was, oh, I'm from the Yorkshire Evening Post. You know, there's a bit of that goes on at Millwall as well. And the unfortunate thing in that particular game, it was... Um, in the, the relegation season 06-07 was that um, there was a penalty in the second half which uh, Ankergren saved I think Chopra took it and um, Ankergren saved and Yorkshire Radio Michael Weedock and Eddie Gray were both going bonkers as the save was made and there were honestly people around about who just wanted to fill them in I mean that's that's kind of how it was but a man used to do this thing where he walked behind and would whip the, whip the crowd up and someone said to me after that and after everything that went on the FA's reaction was basically to remind him of his responsibilities and you sort of think, 20 years on now, you know, considering you get charged for surrounding the referee um, after a penalty's been awarded, what would have happened? You know, it was it was absolute madness that, that entire day, but it did seem to pull the rug. It wasn't the only thing that was going on at Leeds, let's be honest, but it did seem to pull the rug from under them. I mean, at least you avoided the, the coins and the bottles of piss in the Cardiff press box, which I think behind that goal, that was uh, two of the, the particular flavours of, uh, of incoming missiles that were, uh, were rained down upon the away fans. Yeah, I just kept my head down that entire day. Where are you from? Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> You're a coward, Phil. Hey? <laughs> I mean, Cardiff is a classic place for a drubbing as well. I mean, just talking of the Grayson era, in fact, I was just looking, remembering some of his worst ones and they were, they were all in a six-week period of these. There was the 5-2 at Barnsley, the 6-4 Preston and then it kind of capped off this bad run of form with a 4-0 at home to Cardiff. And then after that, we nearly got in the playoffs. <laughs> so you can you can turn it around. Three absolutely horrendous days in there, but... Um, but yeah, we, we were very unlucky to miss out in the end. As I say, it's very different when it's City, isn't it? It's different when it's City playing like that. You can rationalise it in a in a completely different way to going to Barnsley on New Year's Eve and getting tonked 4-1. You know, it's just not the same. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ooh, well, that was a bit spiky, Phil. We're back after Bielsa's press conference. The listener will obviously know what's being said in that. Uh, you were in it. How was that? Did it get tense when the uh, one of the red top journalists, the Nationals, started asking questions about whether Bielsa was going to get sacked? It did. 
I don't think it's a bad thing seeing Bielsa spiky, actually. I always think when times like this, it's it's kind of good seeing him fighting his corner and, and talking about how much he's going to, you know, he's going to crack on and, and stick with it. He was pretty nonplussed, though, by the questions. The first one was... Who asked them, the, Phil? Um... No comment. Uh, but <laughs> he, it wasn't. It wasn't me. Put it that way. Um, Journalist or murder here. But I don't, I don't want to start a, a massive witch hunt on Ring of Silence. Yes. Hey, in silence, um, shame. Well, I mean, it was online, so people will have seen and people will will have heard. The first question was the old pundits have been saying question. Do you remember we spoke about this after the red nap thing? But I was saying pundits is X manager is asked about pundits saying X, and then it develops for for days and days. Well. The question was basically, some pundits think that you've taken the club as far as you can. Can you reassure people that you'll stay till the end of the season? To which, um, and actually, earlier in the press conference, Bielsa had been asked, how do you deal with more difficult periods? You know, in this, these sort of difficult periods, what do you do? To which he'd said outright, it seems to me that you're asking me, should I be sacked? Which, in <laughs> fairness, in that instance, I don't, think, I don't think that was the intention at all. I think it was purely to ask. What is it like dealing with this when you've been used to things being so good at Leeds, which which they have been? But further down the line, it was very much pundits think you've taken, or some pundits think you've taken the club as, as far as you, you can go. Bielsa basically said, I will 100% fight to the end of the season. Absolutely. I, I intend to fight to the end of the season and I hope nothing else happens in that time. But he also said in that period, essentially, are you saying that I, I should be sacked? So the follow-up question was, well, I will ask that. Do you fear being sacked? And you could tell again that Bielsa was really surprised to be asked that. But I think to his credit, he just said, no manager is immune from that. And do you think I'm so vain that I don't think that I could be sacked or that after a 7-0 defeat at Manchester City, it doesn't put me in a slightly difficult position? But again, I will fight. It's kind of all, all I can do. The important thing to say here is that I don't think Bielsa being sacked is in any way a thing at Leeds. I don't think it's a thing with the supporters. I was talking about the survey that we've done earlier huge amounts of faith in him still. To my mind, there's certainly not a thing with the club and the board. I mean, nobody's pretending that the results have been good this season. But I think the general feeling is, and I, I happen to agree with this really strongly, that this squad is built in such a way that it is far better for Bielsa to be in charge than, than anybody else. And I think there is far more chance of the results picking up with Bielsa in charge than, than anybody else. It will push it onto the agenda, but it seems kind of strange to be discussing it because it's kind of being discussed having not you know, the, these noises are not coming out of, of Ellen Road at all. And, and I think that was I think that was why he looked kind of surprised to be finding himself talking about it. Is there a question, though, about whether this carries on into next season? Yes, but I don't think it's a debate for now, is it? Because this has been the case right from the start, that he's gone year to year. And he won't say to the club now whether he would intend to stay. The club probably wouldn't want to make a decision on that now because, you know, look where we are. We have to see how, how things go. His attitude is always that you get to the end of the season and then then you decide. As we said, that not many clubs actually operate like that these days. They pretend much prefer for coaches to be on long term contracts so you know what you're dealing with. But it is what it is, and it was always going to be like this with Bielsa. He wouldn't kind of countenance that discussion at this point, and I don't think anybody at Ellen Road would be particularly interested in having that discussion at the moment either, because there are other things to um to focus on. But clearly, that will come around. Yeah, no, for for sure. In the same way as it came around last season and the season before, and the season before that, because he's on a 12-month contract, and by the nature of the beast, that either needs to be extended, or they move on. Isn't the elephant in the room, though, where that's concerned, the January transfer window, which has been raised in this press conference, because we've got that, um, is there a potential clash situation coming up with size of squad, the people they might want to recruit, what the budget is, 
because Bielsa, in, you know, he never lays down a challenge to the board, does he? He's always very respectful about what they've done. But he said there, I need to reiterate, I have never said I don't want players just that they have to be better. So there's a real challenge baked into I, that. I think that was for our benefit, though, rather than the clubs. I mean, he did say, you guys are basically making out that I don't want um, transfers in January. So what I'm saying is that I want players who are better than I have already and that it's not easy to get players who are better and that the club have already invested a lot of money in the squad and it's not my place to demand that they do more. His attitude has always been that the recruitment has been good enough. And actually, I think he is very respectful of the amount of money that's been spent. And that was the point he was trying to make. I, I didn't feel like it was a challenge to the club at all. On the, on the contrary, I think it was almost him saying, look, players would be helpful next month. And, and you know, I, I'm in no way resistant to the, the general idea, but I understand why it might be complicated. Or I understand why it might not be possible. And above all, he, he doesn't seem to want to lay the blame on the club for that. I, I think he just feels that the, the sort of players he would be after are extremely expensive. And he cannot, he cannot just walk around saying, I want you to spend this. I want you to spend that. I think though, I mean, just just to touch quickly on injury news, Dan James is, is now out for, he has an abductor muscle problem, so he isn't available for the weekend. Jamie Shackleton out with Achilles as well. If you want the full list of senior players who are actually available for this weekend, it is Melier, Dallas, Ailing, Llorente, Koch, Cleek, Forshaw, Roberts, Rafinha, Harrison. So not even an 11 there. It, I, I think they are going to have to be active in January. They're going to have to do something. They're going to have to be clever about it and to to fill the positions that that really do need filled. And and hopefully he'll be be cooperative with that. But he is very you know he's very rigid in saying that he will not just take whoever they can get. You know there has to be some science behind it. But what if he's not cooperative with that? What if they say here is John Swift? We know he likes, for example, and you know, a name that we brought up a couple of weeks ago. He likes John Swift, but that's not to say that he likes John Swift now or wants him for this window. You know what if they say, well, he's available. We can do it for X million pounds. Please, Marcelo, take him. They have had this before, you know. Um, last season, after the whole game, uh, the EFL Cup game that they they lost on penalties, Otto went to him and, and said, I think we could do with a bit more. You know, I think we could do with a, a bit more in the way of resources. So what came off the back of that was Diego Llorente. You know, no, none of us were really expecting them to do another centre-back after Robin Koch came from Freiburg. But within a, a matter of days, they'd spent 80 million on Urenti. And, and as it's turned out, that is a position centre back where they really have needed bodies. You know, they have needed numbers. So I don't think you'd be pig headedly resistant to it. But they are going to have to serve him up players who kind of fit the bill and, and are right. It seems to me that there won't be a vast choice next month, but there must, in the market somewhere, there must be options that would, would be okay. And it just it is starting to feel like too big a risk to say, do you know what, we can go through January without doing anything. It's possible that if they do nothing, they'll stay up anyway. You know, they might have the legs, but it is a risk. Have we got the money, Phil? I think budget-wise, you'd be looking at more shareholder investment. So there would be money there if, if money was put in, basically. Yeah. And where does that come from? Because we're in that delicate situation now, as we touched on, was it last week's show? Mm. feels like a lifetime ago, where we got the 49ers on 44%. So they've got a massive stake. They're massively in, in terms of investment now, but they don't have any control. And then the majority ownership is with Acer and Radrazani. And will they have the willingness to pump in 30, 40, 50 million, whatever it might take if they were to go nuts in this window? Is that a likely outcome? Can you see? I don't see them stretching to 50 million pounds of expenditure in this window. For what it's worth, I don't think too many clubs will do that generally. 
how the money would arrive or where or what split or whatever else, I honestly cannot answer that. But the, the bottom line is that if you need money, you have to find money. Um, and if they need players, they will need to create a budget budget for it. And the size of the budget depends exactly on what, you know, and entirely on what it is that you're going for and who you're going for. I mean, there probably are players out there who are quite cost effective and Swift seems to me to be in that category of players who, if they do like, can't be that expensive, really. But I think... The idea of, I might be completely wrong here, but the idea of really big money signings in this window doesn't seem too plausible to me. Because we've floated a couple of names around and we we should probably clear up where those names have come from. Because people read into it and go, well, Phil keeps mentioning Brereton Diaz or John Swift. And we should probably explain why we keep mentioning those. Rather, rather than we're not trying to tease something out, are we? No, 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 not at all. You asked me about those because people have been writing about them. Um, so there were names that came up, and I was saying, yeah, no, you know, Swift, Swift is a name that we, he likes him, doesn't yeah, no, he? Yeah, no, he, he oh, absolutely he does. But but yeah. you knew that that was going to turn into you know seven eight headlines, which fills stuff for a for a day. Brereton Diaz, not absolutely nothing to say that Leeds are looking at him, at him or have looked at him. He was linked with Brighton, but then Brighton said no, not interested. Touted for about twenty million pounds. It's hard to know at this stage what, what they will go for. It's interesting as well to think about what they really need. If if they were to get one player and only to get one player, my gut feeling had been for a long time that you, you want to cover for Phillips and you want to make sure you've got you've got cover there. But the one thing they never had while Phillips has been injured previously is Forshaw, who, you know, did not have a good game like anybody else on Tuesday, but has actually returned in, in really good fettle. And I don't think he's having any issues with the the old injury that kept him out for ages. That seems to people seem to be quite quite happy about. Is this that. why you tell us there's a new one? <laughs> no, 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 not as not as yet. Although the way that everybody else is dropping like flies, you know, you you kind of don't want to um, don't want to pick up the paper in the morning. But I sort of look at the stats and see the difference, the biggest difference in the creative output. So your big chances, your expected goals, your actual goals scored, and I can't help feeling that a creative midfielder, inventive attacking midfielder, is probably more what they need at this stage than somebody who can cover for Phillips. Phillips will be back before the end of the season, but the issue of creativity has been there since the very start of the season. And that, to my mind, would be the the priority. Well, we shall see. And I presume that Gellhart gets a game then against Arsenal on Saturday, if that game even goes ahead, because we are recording at it's 20 to 2 at the moment on Thursday afternoon, probably worth mentioning the time because we are seeing fixtures from across the, uh, the football pyramid dropping like flies. Yes, um, Leicester versus Spurs, which is due to play tonight, that is gone. It seems quite likely that others will go. Uh, the, the game's in the EFL as well, which has been postponed. Others are, are going to join it. It starts to seem almost impossible now that they can avoid some sort of gap because the impact that this is going to have on training schedules and the you know the freedom to use training grounds, potentially some training grounds needing closed, it seems like it will become unmanageable, certainly for a short period. And I would think that the, the Premier League will need to... Ins- I mean, they could do with taking a bit more leadership with this, I think. It's it's kind of growing and growing and growing. And, and more and more, the discussion is starting to be, what do we do? You know, do we have a circuit breaker? Bielsa was asked about that today and said, you know, it's of no interest to me to be playing teams who are depleted by COVID. I wouldn't want to take advantage of that. But as ever, this is not my decision. You know, this somebody else needs to needs to take a call on this. And I never forget that chain of events on the, th- the very first Thursday when the you know when, when lockdown kind of kicked in the Premier League saying we're fine for this weekend and then about half an hour later Arsenal saying Arteta's tested positive with Covid and suddenly it wasn't fine for the weekend and the entire season stopped you know I, I think they're going to have to be some some big decisions taken about this and it you can't have a situation really where postponements are just coming 
at a rate of knots. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. So, you know, as it stands, Leeds v Arsenal is on, as we record now. And that, like you say, this is Thursday afternoon. But you, you, you're now in those realms where you can't predict what's going to happen from 24 hours to the next. Where on earth do they put the games if there is a if there does have to be a, a two or three week break or there's a certainly enough of a run of of games getting postponed for certain teams because there's there's very little time at the end of this season to the beginning of the next. We've got a World Cup wedged in the middle of next season, which pushes on the end of that later than normal. Then the beat we're into Euros again, aren't we? It's like it's a never ending pattern of games. The saving grace in the Premier League is that you don't have that many midweek matches. Premier League matches. The problem, obviously, is that you have a lot of clubs in Europe, so that congests their fixture list and, and causes problems. I think for a club like Leeds, it wouldn't be difficult to find space for two or three games the other side of Christmas and, and the other side of, of New Year. There really aren't many midweekers scheduled. But it's it's not ideal. And Bielsa's has already spoken this season about the impact that he thinks this schedule is having. You know, this kind of relentless run through international tournaments and international breaks and um, league games, cup games, just never ending and it is it just seems harder and harder for players to get a breather and even if you had a circuit breaker now yes it would give people a bit of downtime but it's not as if anybody's planned for it so you haven't tapered training to prepare for that you haven't you won't have arranged anything for that break it's not as if the players can go away on short holidays or get some warm weather or anything like that everybody will just be kind of lodged at home and I mean clubs will probably want to carry on training as much as they can because they won't want the levels levels to dip but if, if postponement keeps following postponement and if it shows no sign of easing off naturally within the game, then it's very hard to see anything other than a, you know, even a little interlude. There is a, um, a one-week break, isn't there, scheduled for end of January after the Newcastle home game. So there is the potential there to... Is, re- is that not FA Cup? You've got two weeks. By the looks of it, I'm just looking at the calendar now. You've got um, two weeks. So presumably one of them set aside for the FA Cup fourth round and one is where they stagger the weeks off, don't they? So yes. half yeah, the teams right. take a break in one week and then half take a break in the, in the next week or whatever it might be. So the opportunity possibly does exist. Too. Or if you're Spurs, you play three games in that week. <laughs> <laughs> but you, we shall see. Um, does Gellhart play then at the weekend? I don't think we've got much option. I think, other than... I think he probably has to. Michael and I were trying to draw up a bench before the before the start of this podcast and we had to kind of head for soccer base really to remind ourselves of who can who can fill it. I mean, this could be, this could potentially be the youngest bench Leeds have ever named in their entire history. I don't know if anybody's got the stats for that, but you saw Archie Gray down at Spurs with the squad, 15-year-old. I mean, who's to say really? I have no inkling as to whether he is going to be involved, but that, you know, that's the stage it's getting to now. It's just so thin on the ground. Robin Koch is available but clearly hasn't played any football for a long time but he also feels like he's trained well enough and, and intensely enough to be in contention but again I think ideally they would probably left him a little bit longer but it, it is needs must now Yeah and you know circumstances uh, it's the parent of opportunity isn't it and it's an opportunity for Gellhart to say why he should be in that side up front potentially and I'm, I look forward to seeing him I know, I know it's, it all feels fairly bleak at the minute when you've just lost 7-0 and your squad's absolutely decimated by injury but as, as you were saying um, to me through the week, Phil, and you may have mentioned earlier on in the show, I think it's going to be a great atmosphere on Saturday because it's got that perfect cocktail of being late in the afternoon on a Saturday just before Christmas. Elvino will be flowing, as they, uh, as they might have said on the, on the office or whatever. It should be a good one. And I think people will be really excited to see Gellhart up front. Ellen Road never gets licked either by, you know, 7-0 defeats. It, it, on the back of it, it's always really riotous and, and very heated. And I think it will be on Saturday in the way that Leeds need it to be. They're going to need that atmosphere because 
Arsenal kind of strange team. I, I always have it in my head that they're perennially ninth or tenth under Arteta and never get out of that zone and never get going. But they've crept up towards the top four and, and they have been in decent form. Okay, like defeats here and there. And they've had the issue with Aubameyang, who has been stripped of the captaincy, disciplinary issues with him. I haven't seen whether he's going to be involved this weekend, but I would assume not because Arteta was talking about time to heal and time to let that kind of smooth itself over if indeed it ever does. But they are in good form. I, I still feel that of the, the four games, this before they started probably looked like the most winnable um, or the one that Leeds were most likely to take points from. Although something tells me that by the end of the four games, we might ultimately be saying that about Chelsea away. This is winnable, this game. I think you, you can get into Arsenal, but my God, like they're going to have to play so much better than Tuesday night. I mean, Arsenal's players won't be used to hearing atmosphere. Joking aside, all of the journalists who I'm turn up from the Athletic... I'm not, I'm no, not, no, you're, I'm you're, not joking, you're, you're, It was deadpan face <laughs> and it was deadly serious. Very few of the journalists who work at the Athletic have been to a game at Elland Road recently uh, where there's been a crowd because obviously there was COVID last season and then prior to that, Leeds were sort of meandering in the hinterland of, of English football. But they, when they come, they all say the atmosphere here is so different to so many stadiums and it is it is so good. And I think I think it has been absolutely top-notch this season. I really do. I think it will be again on Saturday. I think, you know, th- this run of four games, everybody seemed philosophical at the start of it. And, and if it doesn't go well on Saturday, I, I think, again, people will be able to walk away from that and say, OK, well, you know, it kind of wasn't set up, particularly with injuries, it wasn't set up to, to necessarily go well. It's going to be from Aston Villa onwards where it is going to have to kick in and people are going to have to see results. I think including Bielsa, you know, he, he will know that you cannot carry on through poor form um, indefinitely. But it's it's actually a really fascinating game this on Saturday because how on earth do you call it? If you were a neutral looking at this, you would be piling money on Arsenal. You would be, irrespective of whether you rate Arsenal or you think they're a good team, any team that basically has nine fit first-teamers plus Robin Koch, who hasn't played for ages, would be seen as somewhat underdogs. But there's a but coming, isn't there? There's an and yet. And there's, yet. An, there's an and yet that if it's going to happen anywhere in these circumstances, it's going to happen at Ellen Road. And you're seeing in Bielsa proper spiky defiance, which always gives you a little bit more confidence. And it's time to put on the big boy pants, isn't it, with this run of form? Because everyone's having a... We're not having a good time at the minute, are we, really? Let's face it. It's not been a fun season. I'll be glad when this season's over. And yet, I'm really looking forward to Saturday. And there is something in it for us, I said on our show this week. And there will be something exciting about if we get there. And I guess one of Cresswell or Drama will have to play because of because um, Ailing and Dallas are going to have to play fullbacks probably. So there's going to be some excitement when you get there and you go, well... It's something new. Let's have a look at it. Yeah. You know, you remember the times when Woodgate was thrown in and Alan Smith was thrown in and it was... You never, we didn't quite know what was going to happen with it, but it was, it was exciting, wasn't it? And I guess it gives us a bit of a free hit it, it, to a degree that you can get if you do lose this game. You go, well, what did you expect? Nine fit players. It's not. It's, I, I can't actually ever remember a depth of injury crisis in my entire time watching Leeds. I don't I'm think. starting to wonder if this is the worst I've ever covered, and I'm trying to think of occasions where, when I was young, Rangers tried to get a game at Hibs postponed because they were claiming that. Basically, everybody, absolutely everybody, Gorham, Gascoigne, Loudrop, everybody was injured, ill, whatever else, couldn't play. Game went ahead. I can't remember what the score. I think it drew, but that stands out in my head as a team having an injury crisis where it got to the point where they were actually trying to skip, you know, trying to get games shelved. Obviously, Bielsa is never going to do that, and Leeds won't do that either. But it is horrendous. 
I mean, the, the thing you've got to say about this is, yes, the squad is small and yes, they could have recruited differently and they should have signed a midfielder and blah, blah, blah. But the injuries are so bad that there's no chance of partnerships developing or cohesion developing or sort of continuity. Bielsa always sort of says, you know, I have players ready who can step in and step out. And that's right. But if you speak to players, centre-backs like to get used to playing with a centre-back. Wingers like to get used to having the full-back behind them. And I was having a look and, you know, Harrison and Alioski started a hell of a lot of games last season. It hasn't been the same on the left. So if the left-hand side was better last year than it has been this year, where's the surprise? You know, that that's always how it's how it's going to be. I do... I do feel like they are being handicapped massively by this now. And yes, you know, you could say that there are ways in which they could have mitigated against it. But equally, how do you mitigate against an injury list quite this bad? And yet. And yet. And yet. You see, I like the Hollywood version of Christmas. This is our last game before Christmas. I just imagine an Ellen Road on Saturday where it's absolutely bouncing under the lights. Atmosphere's great. The players are just feeding off it. We're singing to the Arsenal fans, you should have gone Christmas shopping. And we win. And we take a win into Christmas. And everyone goes, do you know what? It's been awful, this run recently. But we're all right. And Gilhart and Cresswell stay in the team till the end of the season because they were, they were so good. Exactly. That's what happens in Hollywood, isn't it? Yeah, It's Gel- like die hard for West Yorkshire. Yeah. yeah. Gelhart goes to the World Cup in Qatar next year. Well, there's a thought. There's a thought. <laughs> I suppose the, the one good thing about this is that this was... If Arsenal played well, this was a difficult game anyway. So if you come out of this with nothing, I guess you have the consolation of saying, well, in no way did we have much of, you know, not much of a chance, but in no way were we set up to win this because look at the, the number of players who are missing. And again, I think it just that that will help to keep people together. It will help to avoid things coming apart at, at the seams. I'm still amazed really to to think about the reaction to, to City on Tuesday night. As I've, I've told the story before about Matt Smith saying that at Hillsborough in 2014, his parents had to leave before the end of the game. <laughs> There's so much abuse of the players God. that they just said, oh, you know, well, they were in the away end and they just said, right, do you know what? It's probably <laughs> don't, best don't if need we, this. we just make a quiet quiet exit. It just wasn't like that on Tuesday. And I don't think it'll be like that on, on Saturday. There is going to come a, you know, if, if the results don't pick up over the next two games, there's going to come a crunch point, which is kind of Villa and Burnley where you need to, to see progress being made. But that is at least a little way down the line. And in the meantime, who knows what's going to happen with the season? Who knows if we're actually going to get an interlude, which will, in terms of you know absences, really help. So prediction time, I predict there will be a game on Saturday and there'll be a result. That's if that's if we do make it. I was it. going to say that's quite a bold prediction. It, it, it actually. is. There'll be a result in that game where one of the two teams will win <laughs> or, or a draw. Or it'll be a draw. <laughs> We used wow. to, you're really sticking your neck on the line. <laughs> Come on, I'm, I, be, I believe in Christmas, I believe in romance, I believe in Hollywood. Come on, it feels nicer than the alternative, doesn't it? I wrote about this when I went in for surgery. We used to have a guy at the, the Evening Post, Charlie Heslett, who, or Charles, I think, as he calls himself. He's at the BBC name. now, isn't he? He is, he is yeah. at um, Radio Leeds. And he used to wind us all up by walking past the sports desk and saying, man kicks ball to man, they either win, <laughs> lose or draw. And obviously we all told them to fuck off, you know, like con- constantly, but used to do that all the time, which is a little bit like your your answer there. I think there will be a game on Saturday. I think we'll get there. I don't know what will come after that. I, oh, I can only predict an Arsenal win, really. I mean, it, maybe it's going to be the most magical day ever. And do you know what? If they do win on Saturday, I'm not quite sure what on earth you would compare that to, given how many players are missing. Common sense tells you that they're, they're in trouble with this game. What romance is there in common sense, Phil? I know. It's Christmas. I know. I'm, I'm very much with Phil. I think I'm 
I mean, I'm Christmassy, but I'm more like I'm the I'm the I'm the first half of It's a Wonderful Life rather than the ending. <laughs> well, we've got one more show to do uh, before Christmas. We'll be back here next week. Um, there's going to be a break in the week between uh, Christmas and New Year, so between Villa and, and Burnley, there'll be no show because the Athletic Football Podcasts all taking a, a week's holiday. So one more to come before the new year and we'll reconvene then. And you two Grinches, come on. We'll have some some mince pies. We'll put our Christmas sweaters on next week. We'll have some smiles, some laughs, yeah? If if Leeds win on Saturday, I will bring you in some Christmas book fast next <laughs> week. How does that sound? <laughs> the, the tenants that you brought me before the Super Strength, they still sat on I the know, shelf. And it's, out, it's out of date now. Although, uh-huh. although, I have to be honest, I don't think it makes a right lot of difference. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just drink it anyway. I'll, I'll pour it on the, uh, on the Christmas pudding and set fire to it. <laughs> Right, we will return next week. Um, don't forget to subscribe to The Athletic, by the way. You can theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll see you in a bit. The Phil Hay Show.